Welcome to McGonigal's Chronicles Making Montana Connections. I'm Tim McGonigal. Jamie Ford has always embraced his creative side. He grew up in the Seattle area and went to school in hopes of becoming an artist, but quickly learned he loved to write. And that way with the written word always seemed to beckon him, even as he embarked on a career in advertising. In March, I spoke with him about his literary journey, which led him not only to Great Falls, but to becoming the New York Times bestselling author of Hotel on the Corner of Bitter and Sweet. He talked about the challenges of writing and his other acclaimed novels, Songs of Willow Frost and Love and Other Consolation Prizes. I hope you enjoy this conversation with author Jamie Ford. What was it like the moment you found out that you were a New York Times best-selling author? What, uh, what went through your mind and, and where were you? What were you doing? It was one of those times for you, I'm sure. Uh, I was in Milwaukee. I was on my, my first book tour and... Uh, Book tours are are frenetic of endeavors, a lot busier than I ever imagined. So you typically, you know, fly in on a very early morning flight, um, go around and do all kinds of just stock signings at like maybe 10 bookstores and then take a nap <laughs> and then get up and, and go to your book events. And I took a nap, my wife and I, my wife was on tour with me, we, we took a nap. And I turned my phone off, and then when I turned my phone on, I had like 19 messages, so I knew something had happened, um, and hopefully it was a good thing. Um, <laughs> hopefully it wasn't, you know, one of my teenagers crashing their car or something <laughs> like that. But no, it was my editor, and it was the publicist, and it was the publisher, and uh, it was just a, a ton of people uh, wishing me congratulations. Um, right. It was surreal. It was very strange. I, it wasn't something I had set out to do, and when it happened, you know, you don't change. It doesn't, uh, your worldview doesn't shift and food doesn't taste better. And it just, you know, it's just another day with a, a different sort of description as to what I do for a living. Those uh, million dollar checks uh, started yeah, coming right. in. No? Still waiting for that one. Still waiting for that one. All right. Well, uh, Jamie, talk about uh, your journey to become a writer. Is it something you always wanted to, to be even when you were growing up? Um. This is a weird, you know, it's, it's a question that I, I usually, you know, for, for the longest time, I would just say no, because I went to art school. But I look back at my sketchbooks from art school, and they're filled with short story ideas and really bad poetry and things like that. So I've, I've always been uh, doing creative things. Uh, my dad wanted me to go to art school. My mom wanted me to be a writer. And so I, you know, I was the editor of the high school, you know, magazine and things like that. So I've, I've been dancing around this subject for a while and I worked in advertising for you know, a number of years. And whenever I grew a little frustrated or fatigued with that industry, I would write on the side just so I had this creative sandbox that I could play around in. And the more I did it, the more I wanted to, you know, to, uh, <laughs> to move into the sandbox. And now I live in that sandbox. Okay. So uh, you know, that's worked out okay. Well, talk about uh, growing up and um, the eventual path that led you to Montana. Mm. Before Montana, well, I, you know, I, I grew up in and around the Seattle area where most of my family still resides. Mm -hmm. um, but between Seattle and Montana, I lived in Hawaii for almost six years. I took a job there. And Hawaii's... You know, it's a magical place with its limitations. You know, the first beach... Christmas was really cool, and the second one was nice, and the third one, I just missed the seasons, and I, I was aching to come back to the mainland, um, had my sights set on a, a smaller town where 
you know, just a better quality of life for my family. But also in the back of my mind, I had this notion that I'd, I'd like to write more. And if I spent, you know, more time at my computer and less time in my commute. In, in Hawaii, I had a commute that was 11 miles. And sometimes it would take me 90 minutes to go those 11 miles. Wow. And so if I could eliminate the commute from my life, I could carve out, you know, a bit more time to write. Um, and that's what I did. Um, and it only took 10 years to get published. <laughs> so, as they say, it's uh, uh, 10 years to lead to overnight success. Yeah. Well, what is it about Montana and Great Falls in particular that, uh, that drew you here and, and keeps you here? You know, Montana, I mean, the general quality of life is pretty amazing. I and mean, I, I see that with a lot of friends who are moving from California to places like Austin, Texas. And they say, people are so nice here. I'm like, yeah, that's, it's a different pace. And people have time to be nice and be courteous and kind and supportive and help out their neighbors. And there's just, there's that. Plus there's an independent spirit in Montana that's really special. And also, you know, when I'm not behind my keyboard, this is the state where I want to do things, whether it's hiking or, you know, kayaking or cross-country skiing. Um, two weekends ago, we, we went off to a forest service cabin for five days and it was, I think our first night there, it was 36 below, um, no electricity, no running water. And it's a, it's a you know, it's a, it's a kind of Montana adventure that's very uh, special and unique to this place. Great Falls has great airport access. All of the, the major cities in, in Montana have great airport access. So when I travel or when I used to travel pre-COVID, super convenient. And then I can come home and just completely unplug and be a normal person and be out of the big city. Plus, yeah. I get a lot of work done here. <laughs> yeah. In the wintertime, there's, there is less to do um, in the winter, and I get most of my writing done, you know, in the wintertime. Yeah. So, 36 below, I mean, if you can survive that, you can survive <laughs> just about anything. So, uh, you know, in Montana. Yeah, that was, it was, uh, we went to bed, it was 40 degrees inside the cabin. So, it took a while for the, <laughs> you know, the, the wood stove to catch up. So, we just wore our ski pants and climbed into our, you know, well-rated uh, sleeping bags. Um, but yeah, that, it's one of those things. I love it because I, I have those, those experiences and I talk to my friends in the publishing world who, you know, they, they're, they're based in New York City. And the thought of going to a cabin without electricity is just, you know, that's like punishment for them. And for, you know, the average Montana, that's just a walk in the park. And I would imagine, too, with the ease of the Internet and, and stuff like that, it, it, for a writer, it makes it, I mean, you can, you know, write your story and uh, once you get it written I mean instantly send it to your your editor or your publisher and or it used to be yeah. in the old days you'd have to send that via mail I guess yeah I have a, an author friend named Hugh Howie and he he's one of the smartest people I know and he's always advocated that the, the New York publishing world should move to to you know someplace like Wichita or <laughs> Des Moines Iowa or someplace where the cost of living is cheaper the quality of life is better and it's central yeah. it doesn't all have to be based in midtown manhattan the world has changed and when i send a manuscript i just email it i'm not um you know going to kinko's and printing out 12 copies and mailing a box that's going to be you know driven around and delivered by bicycle messenger and <laughs> those days are are behind us and my agent isn't in new york my agent is in denver so it's nice to have my agent be in the same time zone um and i think it's changing i, th I think there will be more the publishing world sprouting up and thriving um, in California and Colorado and Texas and other places.
Hopefully. Well, Jamie, I'm sure you get this question a lot. As a New York Times bestselling author, where do your ideas come from? <laughs> uh, I like you just put, put that in the New York Times bestselling author. <laughs> um, as, as, uh, as I tell people, I still have to pick up dog poop in the backyard. You know, nothing <laughs> has changed. Um, I, I'm uh, glad I have that in common with a New York Times bestseller. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just uh, part of the baggage. Um, Usually my ideas come from, from a curiosity, um, something that, you know, it's, it's, it probably comes from the same place where people have, uh, you know, that experience where you go to Wikipedia and you're looking for an answer to something, but you go down a rabbit hole and then suddenly three hours later, you've, you know, you're off in the wilderness. Um, and I, I do that as an author. There's something that will be interested and I'll sort of pull on that thread until everything unravels and I'll look at it and... Sometimes, you know, that's a good foundation for a book. Sometimes it's not. But um, that's the great thing about writing fiction is I really get to explore my curiosities and I get to do research, you know, and call, you know, research for me is interviewing people and going to museums and, and reading a lot of nonfiction. And that, that becomes work. So I'm, I'm, I'm really lucky that, that that's part of my job because I enjoy it. What would you say are the biggest challenges uh, when it comes to, to writing? Ooh. Um, Harlan Ellison, <laughs> great writer, um, he said, the, tr the trick is not becoming a writer, the trick is staying a writer. And there's some merit to that because it's, it's hard work. Like if I, if I met with a kid in high school who wanted to be a writer, um, unless they really, you know, you have to like the writing, you have to like the work more than you like the idea of the profession because the work's hard. And, you know, you can, you could be a plumber or an electrician and make a great living without, you know, massive student loans and things like that. So there's a lot of different career paths for people. Um, but for me, it's, uh, the challenge is, is working on a project that may take two or three years. Um, it's very easy to get burned out on that project. Um, I just turned in a book. Uh, last week and I, I started on a short story and, and I was really tired and fatigued and I didn't really want to do it but once I began it, I was like oh it's so nice to write something else instead of having this other story occupy the front of my brain for um, for literally two years and when you're a writer when you're a full-time writer everything becomes a blur so I may not take weekends off for months at a time um, Monday through Friday doesn't really mean anything since my deadline's there and I can just work all the time so it allows me the, the freedom to check off and, you know, go on a hike on a Tuesday, but it also often means I'm, I'm working through the weekend and just sort of this relentless uh, pursuit of the story. Well, you mentioned Harlan Ellison, and I know that uh, you're forever tied to him. Uh, tell us that story about uh, one of his uh, key pieces of writing equipment that, uh, that you now own, right? Yeah, Uncle Harlan. Um, one of his books was banned from my high school. And I went to the public library, checked it out and read it. And, and that's really the book that made me want to be a writer. Not, not just that, that book per se, but just that was the time, you know, I was probably 16, I think, or 15. And I realized books had the power to cause parents to absolutely lose their minds. And <laughs> that's something very fascinating about that. Um, and, and I've always been a fan of his writing. Um, I reached out to him, we became friends, and then when he was selling his typewriter, his first typewriter, 
um, I offered to buy it, and I did. It's a it's a 1938 um, Remington noiseless portable that his mom bought for him in a secondhand store in Painesville, Ohio, and wow. and I cherish it. It's beautiful. It's every once in a while I'll bust it out and and you know write something on it, and you know as 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 he would say, you're expanding. You know, it's 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 a manual typewriter. It's not electric, so you're expending foot pounds of energy just to write yeah. and bang away at this thing. But it feels different, and um, and I think because of that, it you know it it tracks a different part of your brain. When you sit down to the, at a keyboard and you have social media and you have all of these things that are distracting you, um, that's different than when you're just at a typewriter unplugging the world at a blank piece of paper. All right, it's scary and it's liberating at the same time. <laughs> Well, Jamie, uh, you've had some fantastic novels, and The Hotel on the Corner oh, of Bitter you. and Sweet, that was, uh, I guess that was the first one, correct? And uh, how, how, would you, how would you describe that, uh, that story? It's a great, a great story. Oh, gosh, that story. Um, yeah, that story is, it, it took on a life of its own. Um, I really, you know, I, my dad was, you know, I'm half Chinese. My dad was full Chinese, uh, spoke Cantonese fluently. Mm-hmm went to Chinese school as a child. And when he passed away, I was very, you know, I, I, I lamented this loss, but I was very intrigued by his childhood. Um, when I visit high schools and I visit a lot of schools, I, I often encourage kids, you know, interview your parents, interview your grandparents. I know they're wildly uncool to you at this moment, but if they're gone, you know, there are doors that will close forever and you'll never get to reopen them. And so when that door was closed to me, I really explored his, the time of his childhood. And he was 13 um, or 12, actually, 12, 13, um, time of uh, the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And the book is about a young Chinese-American boy after the bombing of Pearl Harbor who falls in love with a young Japanese-American girl. And ultimately, she and her family in the neighborhood and 120,000 Japanese-Americans and nationals are going to be taken away and incarcerated uh, for their protection, even though the machine guns point in and, and not out. And so... And so he loses her. And it's, it's a story of, of, of the internment, but it's also a story of the Seattle jazz scene and race relations and, um, and, and long lost love. And there's, there's something there that uh, I think is universally appealing for people. I mean, people always lose 20 pounds before they go to their class reunions. So it's not, it's not because they're going to run off with their former high school sweetheart, but they're, they're just certain people that, um, you know, they kind of, they, they remain in this little special category to you. Um, and then the book is very much about that. Yeah. And uh, I know you talk about the internment camps for Japanese Americans. Uh, and that's something we think of in the forties in the world war two times, but, uh, given the nature of the way things are going today, do you think that's something that, I mean, unfortunately could return to, to America? And I guess, and some people would say that, that it has with some of the immigration issues that have been faced down on the border and stuff. Yeah, boy. Um, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a, I've read a, a lot of books about the Southern border. I'm not an expert. I, if anyone wants the voice of an expert, I would recommend uh, an author by the name of Luis, Luis Alberto Orea, who uh, wrote a book called The Devil's Highway, which was very much about the border um, from both sides. It's a very complex situation. For me, you know, the subject of the Japanese internment, um, I, I really didn't think anything like that would even be a consideration. But, um, but you know, after 9-11, the, 
there was a senator from Virginia that was advocating for internment camps for Muslim Americans. And so people were uh, advocating for that. Um, the problem is it's hard to lock someone up based on a belief. It's, it's not something that, you know, in World War II, Japanese Americans congregated in, in red line neighborhoods. Um, they banked at Japanese banks. They just completed a census. And so the, the mechanics of, of rounding up a bunch of people were easier along with, you know, perhaps a, a cultural wrinkle of Japanese Americans wanting to prove their loyalty by being, uh, you know, by, by going along with, with it, even though many did not and many resisted. Um, the circumstances were different, but in this day and age, if the mechanics of it were easier, I think there would be more people advocating for some of that stuff. We're, we just... We don't evolve very quickly as a society. We've had demagogues politically now. We've had demagogues 100 years ago and 200 years ago. There's always one group that says, I'm here, race the drawbridge and keep everyone else out. And 50 years from now, there'll be another group doing the exact same thing. And so hopefully we'll sort of inch toward uh, you know, a saner world, a uh, more inclusive world. But right now, it is the world of this. Yeah. Jamie, did you ever experience discrimination growing up as, as uh, <laughs> part Chinese, half Chinese, I guess? Um, it's, a, it's a funny question. I, I don't know if you can see it right there. That's my grandfather's black belt. Um, okay. my, black, my grandfather taught jujitsu in the 50s, and my dad taught martial arts. And I'm not a small guy. You know, I go about 5'11", 220. And so growing up, I was not a very slight child and so when you're a taller kid and your your dad teaches martial arts my dad taught police officers so when your dad is choking out police officers no one messes with that guy's kid <laughs> so i think that that insulated me from some of that stuff also i have the last name ford um that definitely you know I'm, I'm ethnically ambiguous uh, with, among Caucasian people. I, I can pass as white. Mm -hmm. um, people who are part Asian definitely recognize me as, as being part Asian. And, and when you see a photo of my Chinese relatives, I look very Chinese. Um, and so, you know, I, I did have, when I was in grade school, there was, a, you know, there was a kid who always called me a, a chink. And he was, I felt sorry for him because he was such a, I hate to say this because maybe he's somewhere out there, but he was such uh, a sad child that he had to try and denigrate me to make himself feel better. And even as a third grader, I just felt sorry for him. So, yeah, um, yeah it's, uh, I, I was, I was fortunate. I know people that were not as fortunate. Um, yeah. and especially that's my dad. My dad had very limited opportunities. Uh, my grandfather had even less opportunities, um, my parents got married in 1966 when it was illegal in my mom's home state for uh, interracial, you know, interracial people to get married. And so the circumstances of my parents is vastly different than the circumstances of my childhood. And hopefully my experiences will be different than that of my own kids. Right. Well, another thing uh, from Hotel on the Corner of Bitter and Sweet that you mentioned is the something that I didn't realize that uh, the big jazz influence in the Seattle area. That, that's uh, something that I, that I learned that it, it was a pretty big deal. Yeah. It's, you know, we laugh now because the classic stories of people trying to, you know, ban jazz music or right. thinking the saxophone is the instrument of the devil. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> you know, it's, it's like Footloose. It's, you know, all of these things are going to lead to dancing, which is going to lead to the end of the world. Um, but it, it, it's interlaced with prohibition. And so, you know, that music came up at a time when Seattle, it's, it's near the Canadian border. So there's all kinds of booze being run back and forth. And if you wanted booze, gambling, jazz, other kinds of salacious fun, you know, you went to the ethnic neighborhoods, you went to Chinatown um, or the central district in Seattle. And, and it was a big part of the cultural tapestry there. All, all these great jazz luminaries played there. Ella Fitzgerald plays there. Cab Calloway played there. And it was, you know, it's an interesting time. And I, I miss it because it, it, I, sometimes I feel like I was born in the wrong era because, you know, back then jazz were these huge orchestras and then they became quartets and now you go back and it's just Kenny G and it's not the same in Seattle. It's a little more sedate and sublime than, than what most people would, would be into. All right. Well, you followed up uh, Hotel on the Corner of Bitter and Sweet with another great book, Songs of Willow Frost. Uh, Thanks. Uh, tell us about that book. What's, uh, what's that one about? Uh, Willow Frost, you know, my, my first book was, it be, ended up becoming a father and son story. And my second book is more of a mother-son story. And I, I guess, you know, Dr. Phil would say, I'm just processing a lot of familial grief. Um, <laughs> and you know, it's not far off. I think that's what authors do. Um, Willow Frost is about uh, a young Chinese-American boy. He's never known his father. He last saw his mother when he was about six years old. And his mother's uh, body was, you know, she was being taken to the hospital, presumed dead. And he's living in Seattle Sacred Heart Orphanage during the Depression. And what uh, Sacred Heart Orphanage was a, was a real place. And what they would do once a year, would, if the kids were good, they would take them off campus once per year. They'd go see a movie. And so he goes with his class to see a movie. And it's a silent film. And he sees an actress on the screen that he recognizes as his mother. And it's, it's about, you know, how did all of that come to pass um, and their relationship. And... It's, it's interesting because, you know, Sacred Heart was a real place and most of the kids at Sacred Heart during the Depression and post-Depression, they still had at least one living parent. We think of orphans, you know, like Little Orphan Annie or something like that. There's no parent involved. But even after, after I wrote that book, um, I did a, an event at the Barnes & Noble in, in Great Falls and a woman came down from the Browning Reservation and said, I grew up in Seattle Sacred Heart Orphanage. My, you know, my mother and father left the reservation, went to Seattle. Uh, her father uh, died and the mother took them to the orphanage and then came back once to bring them winter coats and then she never saw her mother again. And so I write about things that, you know, the characters are often made up, but there's real uh, nonfiction elements. So there's real connective tissue to reality. So it's interesting to write a book like that and, and then and she wasn't the only one that sent me letters. I received a bunch of letters from former Sacred Heart orphans, which were always very moving. Speaking of characters in that book, there's one character, Sonny Sixkiller, who uh, there yeah. was a Sonny Sixkiller who was a quarterback for the Washington Huskies back in the late '60s, I believe. Yeah, that's my little Easter egg in there. Um, <laughs> I before my family moved to Seattle, um, I lived in Ashland, Oregon, until I was 12. Um, my grandparents, my Chinese grandparents, were in Seattle, so we were always going back and forth to Seattle. And then we finally relocated after the fifth grade. 
But when I was in, uh, in Southern Oregon, um, the quarterback at Ashland High School was Sonny Sixkiller, okay. who then went became the quarterback for the Huskies from the University of Washington. And I'm a Husky fan. And, sure. and I just needed a cool name. And I always thought that was just a great, memorable, <laughs> iconic name. Yeah. And so I changed the spelling of Sonny. But it's, it is kind of a, a, a hat tip to uh, that great quarterback. Cool. Uh, and, and, and that story has some, some heartbreaking moments. I mean, uh, I mean, William yeah. loses his it's best a, friend. It's a darker story. <laughs> it has a redemptive ending for anyone yeah. that's out there watching. But, but it, is, it is a heavier story. Um, and, and, it, and, it, and it warranted it. And it's the depression. It, it deals with people who've lost, you know, children who've lost their parents and some of the abuses that they went through um, in and out of the orphanage. And um, it's a it's a harder it's a, it's a it's a I guess if, if hotel my first book is G rated this one is kind of this is more of, a, of an R rated book it's just a little more intense okay I would say it's PG thirteen yeah okay yeah <laughs> on the uh, the third novel is uh, Love and Other Consolation Prizes and I think for me at least I think that's my favorite uh, maybe because oh, it has such a such a bizarre element to it that uh, Ernest, the main character, uh, was raffled off at the uh, state, not the state fair, I guess it was the World's Fair at, at that time. And, and that really yeah. happened, right? That, that was something that, that really happened? It did. Uh, the Alaska Yukon Pacific yeah. Expo, which was uh, Seattle's World's Fair in 1909, they, they had themed days, and every day they had a theme and a prize they would raffle off. Um, even they had a, a, a mining day and they raffled off 3,000 copper ingots from, from Butte in Anaconda. And on September 15th, 1909, it was Washington Children's Day and they raffled off a child. And he was donated by the Washington Children's Receiving Home and his, his name was Ernest. Um, there were ads in the Seattle Times advertising the giveaways and it was, it was a child. And no one knows what ever happened to him. Um, and I had always been fascinated with that story. Not, not just that story, but the casualness with how society regarded that story. Yeah. Um, I mean, to, by today's standards, the thought of giving away a child seems really barbaric, but, barbaric, but, but back then, I think it was seen as merciful or beneficial as a child that might otherwise end up in a, in a poor home or you know, some sort of work farm or something like that. Um, and having a family was was seen as a good thing, even though the circumstances were really unusual by today's standard. And that, uh, a lot of that story takes place in a place called the Tenderloin. Was that also a, a real uh, place in, in Seattle? Yeah. It, I mean, it wasn't called the Tenderloin. I, I made that name up because okay. I needed a name for it. But um, the, that building is still there. It's, there's a historical marker. It's, it's, a, you know, it's a historical uh, registered building. Um, it was this famous brothel, and now it is a uh, a men's rescue mission. <laughs> so it's wow. kind of it's come full circle, um, but it's still there. And in the, the one floor, the basement floor, um, they still it's a it's a free dental clinic, and they still retain the old wallpaper, hand painted wallpaper. It's a plush red velvet bordello-esque wallpaper um, that's still there. They kept it. 
Um, and it's, it's wild to go into that place. Um, and it's, yeah, it's right downtown Seattle and it's, it's still there. So much history in your books that uh, anybody's a history buff and makes it out to Seattle, they can take a little tour and uh, use your books as a, as a guide, it, it seems like. Yeah, the, the, the Wing Luke Museum, which is in the International District, actually offers uh, a bitter and sweet tour that goes to the locations in the hotel. And for a while, they did a Willow for Us tour because some of those locations were there as well. But as my books grow, they, they spread out a little farther than you can walk. Um, with hotel, you can really walk to all those sites in, you know, an hour. With the other books, you, you can't. You'd have to get on a bus and go yeah. to the orphanage and things like that. But the places are there. Yeah. And for book clubs, it becomes a real, you know, it becomes, it becomes a field trip for, you know, classes, high school classes that are reading the book. They make these treks down to these locations and they send me the photos, which is always super cool. Um, and same with book clubs, um, the Panama Hotel, which is in, you know, that's the real hotel in the corner of the Herd Suite. The owner had, you know, she stopped giving me updates years ago, but um, there was a time where she would call me and tell me. And they had, at last count, more than 200 book clubs come visit the hotel and have tea and coffee and stuff like that. So it was pretty neat. All right. Jamie, I know you've also written a number of short stories and taken part in a number of other writing projects. Uh, one that I saw called Alone Together, Love, Grief, and Comfort in the Time of COVID-19. What's, uh, what's that one about, and what was, what was your role in that? Um, you know, I was just a contributor. Uh, I have a friend who put that together. And there's, there's an organization. It was started by Borders Bookstores, which is, they're gone. But they had a foundation that uh, raised money for booksellers um, or, and people who had been in the industry and, you know, for whatever reason, didn't have health insurance or had some calamity. Um, and it, it, you know, awarded grants to help people in distress. And so, um, because bookstores, like every business in America was hurt by the shutdown, bookstores, it's a retail environment, not only have they been, you know, rocked by Amazon, but you know, COVID shut many of them down for a long time and they're just now recovering. And so it was a, it was a project we all donated, you know, created and donated stories. And then all the money went to independent bookstores um, and booksellers, which I thought was, was a great idea and it was fun to contribute. Um, and it's, it's always, I mean, I write lots of short fiction and other things and I'm working on one today and it's, it's just nice to have a mental change up and work on something. Else. And a lot of times uh, when I write short fiction, I'll write outside of my genre or outside of whatever I normally do. And that's, and that's, it just gives me a bigger box of crayons to play with um, to write crime noir or, you know, apocalyptic fiction or <laughs> middle grade horror or all the things that I've, I've been able to do outside of, of the typical books that I write. All right. Well, do you have any other novels in the works or planning stages? <laughs> uh, and if so, what, what could you tell us about it? As I, as I nervously laugh, um, I just turned in a book last week. Okay. Um, and my, my editor saw maybe 150 pages of it and she, she was really happy at the time. And so now this is the first time she's seen the whole thing in its entirety. So this is this weird nether world that, that I live in when I, I turn a book in and then I'm just waiting on pins and needles to, to hear back from my editor to see if she, if she liked it. Um, and, and the new book is, is 
it's it's a it's 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 growth for me. Um, my first three books were set in Seattle, had a young protagonist, um, split narratives. This one has six main characters, uh, six different time periods. It's historical and speculative, so it has just a touch of you could call it light science fiction. Um, and it's it just it's a lot it's a lot of things. It's a super ambitious project for me, the hardest thing I've ever written. Um, and so I hope I've been able to pull it off. Let's we'll see. My 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 agent my agent and my editor were wondering how I was gonna, you know, juggle all of these elements, but once I turned in that that partial manuscript, my editor, you know, she became a believer and she got it. And, and hopefully I haven't, um, you know, lost the plot by the time I cross the finish line. It, you, you write these, it's a 400 page book. And so by the time I'm, I'm finishing up, I'm, I'm so lost in the weeds. Sometimes I can't, I can't see clearly. And so there's always the chance that I have gone off on some weird tangent. I don't think so, but we'll see. All right. Uh, and do you know when that might, uh, if, if all goes according to plan, when, when could we expect to see that? Um, probably this time next year. I mean, I, I think they'd like me to be uh, a springtime author. There's really two seasons, spring books and fall books. Um, and there are summer books, but my publisher, for, for marketing reasons, sees me um, as a, a spring author. There's just less noise. In, in the fall, you're going up against, um, you know, James Patterson's 15 ghost-written novels, things like that. It's just yeah. it's hard to, to break out of that pack. Yeah. Well, uh, Jamie, you've told us about some of the authors that you've, uh, you've read, Harlan Ellison. Uh, who, who else uh, uh, do you like to read, as, uh, and who, who would you recommend uh, for, for mm. someone who's looking for a good book to read? You know, probably my go-to favorite is uh, Pat Conroy, who wrote The Prince of Tides and The Great Santini, Lords of Discipline. Um, I, I just love Pat's work. I like his storytelling, his prose. Uh, I was fortunate enough to spend time with Pat and just admired him, idolized him, really, just as, you know, he's who I wanted to be on the page and off the page. He was just a, he was, he was such a gentleman and kind and gracious and, um, and funny and genuine and definitely someone that I, I looked up to. Um, other you know, contemporary authors, there's uh, an author named uh, Viet Nguyen, who wrote The Sympathizer, which won a Pulitzer Prize, and I'm just in awe of his, his work. He's amazing. Um, he just, and, and he was uh, a refugee, so he came to this country after the fall of Saigon. He came to this country when he was four years old and, and lived in a refugee camp, and then he went on to become, you know, have a doctorate and be a professor at USC and win the Pulitzer. So not only do I, I love his writing and his stories and his work, but his whole life is a monumental American dream success story. And uh, he's, just, he's just a profoundly, uh, you know, interesting. And you know, he's a strident person. He has very strong opinions that I, that I, I respect and I learn a lot from. Okay. You said earlier that uh, you spend a lot of time at high schools talking to kids. Uh, what, what's your advice to them, uh, especially the ones that maybe want to become a writer like yourself? What, uh, what advice would you have for someone who's trying to break into the, into the business? <laughs> um, you know, I tend to, I'm a self-taught writer, for better or worse. I, I have a, a, a degree in art unrelated to, to writing. And so 
you know, if I can do it, anyone can do it. Truly, just I mean, there's a lot of self-taught writers, a lot of self-taught musicians, self-taught artists. Um, it's it's possible, and something I, I also say in schools, you know, I tell them Stephen King is going to die, and J.K. Rowling is going to die. Like all these people, I'm going to die, and there needs to be someone else. The next generation has has to fill these shoes. And it might as well be, you know, that 16-year-old kid in Duluth who's trying to write stories. Um, and, I, and I've run into some real precocious kids once. I, I visited a high school and a girl came up to me, I think she was 16, and she said that she was, was publishing a book. And I was, you know, foolish me, I was assuming it was this self-published um, something. And then she told me her publisher, who her agent was, and I'm like, who are you? And she had sold... <laughs> Uh, a two book deal for like a quarter million dollars as a 16 year old. Wow. Um, it's, it's, it's insane. And it's possible. I, I think we, we put limits on what, what we're capable of. Um, we, you know, and I do the same thing. I mean, I'm as filled with self doubt and insecurities as anybody, but there's something beautiful about a high school kid who doesn't see the reasons why he or she cannot accomplish something because they're young and they, all they see is the finish line. And often as adults, all we see is, are, are the reasons not to start. Yeah. And I'm sure for, for people who want to get into writing and they see the success of a Stephen King or, or yourself or some of the other James Patterson, uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's great and there's, there's money in it, but there's also satisfaction too in doing, doing what you love. So hopefully yeah. people love to write. Yeah, it's hard work, but when it's going well, it, do, it does feel good. When you start it in the morning with a cup of coffee and a blank page, and then this time in the afternoon, you've written something that you're, that you're very happy with that didn't exist when you woke up. Um, you know, it feels good. It feels additive. Um, and if the books go out and they're received as entertainment, that's great. If, if they're received as education, cool but when it when they move people emotionally um, that's usually the most gratifying i, I tend to, to say I'm, I'm someone in the compassion creation business and when you are able to hold the reader's hand and walk them through the trials and tribulations of someone else's experience that's a, an empathy enlarging exercise and you know the, you know there's a bit of an empathy deficit in our culture right now and so anything that's additive that that makes people be a bit kinder to their neighbors, I think, is a good thing. All right. Well, Jamie Ford, it has been a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, I, I read uh, Songs of Willow Front, actually listened to that book, and I also listened to Love and Other Constellation Prizes, and I also uh, I read Hotel on the Corner of Bittersweet in about three days, so it was, it was a very <laughs> a difficult book to put down, so, and that's, that's a good Thank sign, you. I think. You've been listening to a conversation with Great Falls author Jamie Ford. His novel, Hotel on the Corner of Bitter and Sweet, spent 130 weeks on the New York Times bestselling list. Next time on McGonagall's Chronicles, Making Montana Connections. We actually filmed on the property where he lived. Uh, we rebuilt the cabin, an exact replica of the cabin, exactly where it was. Former Helena resident and now New York filmmaker Matt Flanders discusses his upcoming production, Ted K. It's a look at the life and times of Unabomber and former Lincoln resident Ted Kaczynski. 
And I invite you to follow this podcast on social media, offering your ideas and feedback. Simply search for McGonagall's Chronicles on Facebook and Twitter. This has been McGonagall's Chronicles, making Montana connections. I'm Tim McGonagall.